Well, good morning, all. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 52, if you will. <clears throat> now we have been pursuing sort of a sub-sub theme. The church equals the body. The body equals the church. Terminology for the people of God. The church reaches back into the Old Testament and brings it into the new covenant realities in Christ. And body is that new wineskin of the people of God. And once that new covenant reality in Jesus has been established in his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reign. All of those go together. Don't leave any out. It's not just death and burial and resurrection. It's ascension and reign. That is part of the gospel. Who are the people of God from the Old Testament? We've been looking at the servant songs in Isaiah, chapter 40 through 55. We've seen that there is a servant of the Lord in those chapters in various segments and beyond, um, where the servant is an individual. We are given his identity, his mission, his suffering, and his glory. And then there is a collective group that is also called the servant of the Lord with terms like Jacob, Israel, and as many leave out, the nations. The nations are part of it. As we were looking at Isaiah, particularly a certain section of Isaiah, it was important to have in our remembrance that there are four biblical covenants in the Old Testament that are delineated. Covenant with Noah, Genesis 9, Abraham, Genesis 12, the Mosaic Covenant, Exodus 19, and the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel 7. These covenants structure the Old Testament in many ways. <clears throat> and as we come to the prophets that are after those covenants have been established, and the Psalms also, never forget the Psalms, they're full of prophecy, full of rich prophecy because they're very personalized prophecies. Um, when we come to the prophets and the Psalms, they are gathering all of the types, the shadows, the symbols, the imagery, the prophetic statements, the promises of those covenants. They are gathering them all together, and those, they are weaving together the description of that new and final covenant in Jesus Christ. We've been focused on Isaiah chapter 51 through 55. Part, they're part of the servant songs, and this section is important because in this section, it's a very unique unit from 51 to 55, all of the biblical covenants, all five of them are present, and all five of them are woven together. It's just an amazing section of Isaiah. <clears throat> we find <clears throat> that the Old Covenants, Old Testament covenants, those four, find their culmination and fulfillment in the new covenant in Jesus Christ. And this is not New Testament theology. This is biblical theology. This is Isianic theology. That these covenants find their fulfillment in one new covenant in Christ is not something new to the church. It's not something that Jesus and the apostles whipped up and pulled off a skyhook. These are things that were pursued for <clears throat> thousands of years of prophecy and types and shadows in the word of God. Again, if we were to have sort of a picture of it, and because sometimes it's, it's hard to grasp, so I'm always kind of putting it out there, get a, get a good framework of how to read the Bible, in particular how to read the Old Testament, and especially how to read the prophets. 
We have Isaiah, and remember, Isaiah is there writing in a historical circumstance. The, main, the major power in the world at that time is Assyria. You could put down Egypt, but Egypt is kind of <clears throat> sort of trailing along the whole time. It's sort of up and down, so Egypt is always in the background. But the major vibrant power, anyway, that controlled the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent was Assyria. And Assyria carried northern Israel away captive in 722 B.C., um, and Isaiah wrote during that time. And Isaiah, at times, is writing to the people of his day. Certainly chapters 1 through 12 and following are to the people of his day and the nations, the regions surrounding Israel in that day, the major political powers. Just like we would talk about Taiwan or China or Ukraine or Russia, you know, or, or NATO or Europe. I mean, that's, that's what Isaiah is talking about, all these terms familiar to them but unfamiliar to us, nevertheless, just as real and significant to them as those terms are to us in our day. And Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, is not writing to the people of his day. He's done that. You've broken the covenant, he tells them, and God is going to carry you away captive to Babylon. So starting with Isaiah 40, God is through Isaiah speaking to those captives. He's speaking to those captives 125 to 150 years down the road. So Isaiah's prophecies are truly Old Testament eschatology. If you've never heard that term, if that sounds strange to you, the Old Testament has an eschatology. It has an eschatology of the future. It has an eschatology of an immediate future. It has an eschatology of a distant future. It has an eschatology of a, an ultimate future. And so the Old Testament is where eschatology begins, not the new. The new merely <clears throat> establishes the fulfillment and the manifestation, the realities, the actual experience of, and details that you could not know until Jesus came and accomplished redemption. So Isaiah is speaking to these captives, and that's important to understand these captives. And now Babylon has gained ascendancy. So if you're just, you know, trying to read the prophets, always sort of pay attention to the major world powers. It's uh, Assyria in Isaiah's day and Babylon during the day of the audience to which half of his prophecies are being written. They were captives, and during this time in Babylon, two prominent as you would say, prophets, Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel was more statesman than a prophet. Um, <clears throat> but you have Daniel and Ezekiel are living during those times and writing to the captives during those times that Isaiah had previously written to 125 years before. Isaiah also not only writes to the captives to encourage them, he writes to them and gives them an eschatology. Hey, guys, you're going to return. You're going to return back to the land of Israel. You're going to return, and uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah, that's fulfilled. They return, and they rebuild Jerusalem, and they rebuild the second temple. That's why Ezra and Nehemiah are so significant. And you have Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesying, prophesying to that time. And the Persians are the ones who are in charge during this day. But as time moves on and Isaiah moves on, He's not just speaking to the captives to encourage them. He's not just telling them about a near-term return, a near-term rebuilding of Jerusalem, <clears throat> but he's speaking of a new covenant. And we are trying to draw this out as we go through Isaiah 51 through 55. 
There are those, at least certainly in times past, who have said that Isaiah's only writing to Israel or writing more significantly to Israel, the, the new covenant and Jesus that you know, may be mentioned, but that's not his focus, and I'm here to tell you that's exactly upside down. The focus of all that the prophets write is ultimately the new covenant in Jesus Christ, not ultimately a nation of Israel. And you see that all over the New Testament. And so I always have to ask myself, because every now and then I go, well, Steve, are you crazy? Now, some of you may say, I, might, I should adjust my answer to that. But I go, you know, <clears throat> half the church tells me that the Old Testament is all about the nation of Israel. And that the church is an interim. And once the church is raptured out, all those prophecies to Israel will be fulfilled in, in a millennium. And, and that's what they want to tell me. That's what they want me to see. So I ask myself, well, am I crazy? Is that true? And all I have to do is just open the New Testament. I'm like, well, I can't find that anywhere. I cannot find that description anywhere in the New Testament. But I do find a description everywhere in the New Testament that I'm trying to portray in this picture. That the prophets <clears throat> sought and searched diligently concerning the time or manner of time which they were speaking about. And unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, Israel, but unto us that they announce these things which have been proclaimed to us by those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven. Peter all over the place says, this is how you're supposed to read the Old Testament. <clears throat> you see that all over in Paul's letters. This is how you're supposed to read the Old Testament. So as we move on, here's this picture. Um, I hope it's helpful to you. I hope when you're reading the Old Testament, you might go, ah, there's this picture. And I'm supposed to be seeing the new covenant here in more places that are just, you know, immediately obvious and uh, uh, help you as you read the book to get sweetness out of that Old Testament, which can sometimes be very difficult and challenging. Now, if we were to pick up this sort of diagram that I've drawn, add a couple things to it. Remember, Isaiah is, is, is taking the material of the four covenants that have gone before him, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, He's weaving it into a message to captives who were there because they disobeyed God and disobeyed God and disobeyed God for hundreds of years, not last week, not for a moment. They continually disobeyed God and they killed and they murdered and they did all kinds of things. So if you start thinking, well, gosh, I, you know, I disobeyed the Lord yesterday. Am I ever going to make it? The, the Israelites didn't. Well, it's like, come on, guys. Did, did you murder someone yesterday? Were you trying to defraud widows of their houses? I mean, that's what was going on in Israel, and that is what Isaiah condemns them for. Not those daily sins that we regret and try to reform on. So here is Isaiah. Captives, a return from captivity, and a new covenant. But he, he presents things even further, even more distant than the establishment of a new covenant. He starts to say that this new covenant is going to embrace all nations. This is going to be a global thing. And when we start wondering, well, how is it supposed to embrace all nations? Well, we're going to look at that. We may not get to it today, but we're going to look at that. How is this covenant going to embrace all nations? He also speaks of judgment. There will be a time of reckoning, a day of reckoning, an era of reckoning, a moment of reckoning where everything that's ever transpired in the human race will be adjusted and rectified 
according to the righteousness of God. There is judgment yet to come. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. This is the framework of Isaiah. This is how you read it. If someone says you should read it another way, that you should focus on Israel, or Israel is God's time clock, just go, nah, that's not what Jesus and the apostles say, and I pick them, not the latest crop of theologians. So this is a picture. I hope it, it helps you. We looked at Isaiah chapter 51. Talks about Abraham and Sarah. Talks about Eden and a new creation. Talks about justification of God's righteousness. God's righteousness that will be forever. Talks about all nations. It talks about a new exodus. And if you were to sum it all up, it's talking about the new covenant. Those are all elements of the new covenant. And today we begin with Isaiah 52. So let's pray and ask God to be with us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that the New Testament writers did not invent the gospel that you have deposited the realities, the material of this gospel, the foundations of this gospel, starting in Genesis 3.15. Lord, there you said without any ambiguity that the seed of the woman is going to destroy the seed of the serpent. And Lord, though it might have been vague, it was certainly real, unquestioning, that there would be victory over evil. And that, Lord, the rest of your word does not pursue daily news, events, and things like that. It pursues a history, a real, in-person, on-the-clock, on-the-calendar history of your purpose to redeem sinners from sin and death. That is the message of the Bible. That is the core that we are to draw from it. That is all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our confidence. That is why we are here before you this morning. That is why we live unto you every day. That is why we struggle with indwelling sin and have victory in indwelling sin. And that is why we praise you and worship you. And that is why we hope in you and trust in you. This is one Bible. This is not two Testaments. This is one word of God. It has a beginning of promises and types and shadows. And it has a culmination and a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And one day a new heavens and new earth. And that is our hope. So, Lord, as we look again at your word this morning, Isaiah 52, these, these places, can, these passages can be a puzzlement to us at times. Some of them, it, it cracks open with study. Some of them, we just, we're just kind of left. But Lord, we trust at your word and ask that you would do what no preacher can do and really no amount of study can do, no amount of understanding the geography can do, that you would take your precious promises and your exhortations and your imperatives and you would write them on our hearts like you promised in the new covenant. Lord, we just want to live unto you. We want to hear from you. We want your word to be living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword in our lives. And just pray you would do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 52, 1 through 2. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. What a passage. 
What poetry? Does that not have a sense, a ring of eternity to it? That it stands above the fray and the confusion of life and the, the doldrums of everyday living, the mundane, and it stands up there and pulls our heart up into the heart of God. This is God speaking. God speaking to human beings. It's interesting, as I've talked to atheists, I used to be one, so talking to people like myself before I became a Christian, they always say you can't know God. There is no God, and they're going to affirm that there's no God because they say there's no God. And for, sometimes that can shake you. The tactic of the new atheists in our day is to just be condescending bullies. That's just what they are. Don't think that they have any intellectual accomplishment on their side that gives them some secret understanding by which they can affirm to your face that there is no God. It is simply their personal opinion and the dynamic of their argument is bullying and condescension and a false appeal to some pseudo-authority of their scholarly accomplishments. That's all it is. Any one of you here, any one of you kids could walk up to one of these atheists and say, that's not true. And you have just as much authority as they do. Actually more. The atheist will come and say that, well, there is no God, and your answer in response to them should be, well, that's just not true because I know him. You can tell me all day long that there's no God, but I'm telling you all day long, I know him. And he's going to say, you're just confused. And you're going to say, no, you're the one that's confused. And there it goes. It's your word against his. They have no authority for what they say. They have no insight for what they say. They just have a skeptical presentation that sounds good to the world. As the Wendy's commercial states it, many of you weren't around for it. Me and Gwen remember the first time we saw the Wendy commercial, and the little old lady shuffles up to the Wendy's counter and says, where's the beef? And that became an iconic commercial for probably to this day. And that's what you can say to every atheist that comes to you. Where's the beef, guys? Where's the beef? I know the living God. And your problem is is that you don't know him. You're only affirming what you don't know. You have no authority other than what you don't know. We know the living God. And God speaks, and here God is speaking to human beings. It's real. You don't need credentials. You don't need to be an expert. You need to be as a little child. And if you're a little child as a little child... You can know God. If you're a big person as a little child, you can know God. The only qualification is fessing up your sin and saying, Lord, I want to repent of it. Forgive my sin on a just basis because you're a holy and just God in Jesus. Forgive my sin. And you can know God. And here is God speaking in this lofty language. Oh, Zion. Oh, Jerusalem. Now, to fully appreciate this, this O Zion, O Jerusalem, 
You can see Jerusalem, Zion, they, they are coupled together throughout the Bible. There are some common designations of physical places in the Bible, and the ones that God cares about are the land of Canaan, or just the land, Jerusalem, and Zion. This is the terminology you encounter in the Psalms. This is the terminology you encounter in the prophets. Even Jesus makes an awesome statement. He says, don't swear by heaven because it's God's throne. Don't swear by the earth because it's his footstool. And don't swear by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. These things represent grand realities in Scripture. Psalm 87 is just an awesome psalm because it collects these things together. It's a song of the sons of Korah, a psalm, a song. It starts out, his, God's foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Here in this First few verses, we have a reference to the land in general, the dwelling places of Jacob. There will be other references to the land, but there's this broad picture of where the 12 tribes were settled. We call it the land of Palestine. God says, my people are there, and that's where I will dwell with them. In a symbolic way, later, later that land will turn into things. that God narrows things down from a land to a city to a hill to a temple. But it does not eliminate the broader pictures. The psalm also talks about holy mountains. There's several of them in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah and Mount Zion, and these comprise the city of God. So we're not just in the land in general, we're now in this place, this geographical place where there's mountains. We probably would look at them and call them hills, in their relative height, because remember, they're up pretty high, and then they have some hills, and they're called mountains because they're actually higher, but as you look, they'll look like hills. And his foundation is there. Are we to read this literally? Do you really believe the foundation of God who made the heavens and the earth is in some dirt hills over on one part of a little teeny globe in a mediocre galaxy? in a gigantically, impossibly big universe? Or is this symbolic? What God has done that is a foundation of the history of redemption finds that history centered in what we see in a land, in a city, and in a mountain. And they're holy mountains they're set apart unto God. And the Lord loves the gates of Zion. So we've gone from the places of Jacob to the city of God, where there's mountains, to one of those mountains and to its gates. Again, Hebrew poetry, metaphors. Pretty sure God is not saying, you know, I like the architectural structure of the gates of Zion more than I like, you know, of the palace over in Shushan. Uh, I just have this architectural, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Why does God love those gates? 
I like my house. I like my new kitchen after 70 years of my life. But the whole reason I like being there is because there's a special someone there. And that's where I live and commune with that special someone. That's where I enjoy the company of that special someone. That's where I share life with a special someone. And that's why I really like my house. And if we were to move to a trailer, then that trailer would be special. If we were moved to a tent, well, then that would be special. God loves the gates of Zion because there his people dwell. Jerusalem and Zion are sort of mapped together. And Jerusalem and Zion, this terminology through the history of redemption and through the literature of that history, especially in the Psalms, they become symbolic and representative of the people of God and the kingdom of God, even in the Old Testament. You see, there's a group of people that will say you must read the Old Testament literally. And the reason they say that is because that's the only way they can come up with their theology. And by doing so, they just destroy the Old Testament. And they say, well, you don't have all the symbolism. Like, I'm looking at the symbolism right here in this psalm, symbolism where the Old Testament is referencing the Old Testament symbolically. We have to read the Bible the way it's written, not the way we wish it was written. The psalm goes on, I shall mention Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. Rahab is but another name for Egypt, and they use Rahab because that was part of its pantheon of gods and its little histories that they put up there, or little stories that they put Babylon, another pagan nation. Philistian Tyre. The Philistines were always troubling Israel, weren't they? Enemies of God. Tyre, out on the coast, again, just another godless group. Ethiopia, over in southern Egypt. The peoples. Wait a minute, I thought this was Zion. I thought this was, you know, Palestine. I thought this was Jerusalem, a city. How come now you're bringing in all this other geography from all this space outside of anything we might call Israel? Because Zion and Jerusalem are symbolic of a greater reality to come. And we see it in Psalm 87 written by some folks called Korah. And the people that are in these cities, in these pagan countries, in that day, that was the extent of the geography that you would talk about. It's kind of like us. I mean, we can talk about the upstate, you know, we can talk about the Piedmont, we can talk about going to the beach, Fripp Island, Charleston, How many of you start talking about cities in Kentucky or Illinois? I mean, you don't, because they're outside the scope of your reference. Every city in the world could have been added to the psalm. We just get a sample here. And all the people of these geographical locations 
are going to come to Zion. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 2, don't we? The nations are going to come to, to Zion. They're going to turn their spears into plowshares, pruning hooks. They're going to turn their weapons of war into farming tools. And all the nations are going to flow under where? Zion. This is just another psalm confirming it. And this is where Isaiah gets some of his material. One prophecy builds on another. This is prophetic material. And it's in the Psalms. And as these people come, note the language. They don't come for a vacation. They don't come as tourists. They're born there. They're born in her. They're born there. They're registered there. The people who come to Zion from all these places are going to come not as strangers to that place, but they're going to come as true, legitimate, bona fide citizens. This is a psalm. This is the gospel. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven. Colossians 3.1 and 2 Set your affections on the things above, not on things on the earth. Set your affections where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly Zion. Ephesians 2.8, we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Where is that? Anybody? Starts with a Z. Anybody? All right, yes. Born there. Are you born there? Not do you know about it, not do you have pictures of it, not do you have the language of Zion. Are you a citizen of the heavenly Zion in Jesus Christ? Are you born there? And there's more to it in this psalm. The Most High is going to establish, or God loves this place because that's where his people are. That's what this Zion represents. And God is going to establish her, the Most High himself. God is personally engaged. When these atheists tell me, well, you can't know God, I just, I, just, I don't even know what to say some, most of the time. It's like, are you kidding? I know the God who made the heavens and the earth, and he loves me with the whole of his being. Now, I don't act like that a lot of times, at least not in my faith and trust, but the most high himself. The majesty on high himself. The one who takes a whole pile of stars and packs them together and makes a black hole and spins it around. God himself. And again, it's not just, oh, my citizenship's there, but you know. Nah, it's those who sing as well as those who play the flutes. They're going to say, they're going to sing, they're going to be dancing. 
All my springs of joy are in you. Is that you? Does that describe you as the ultimate joy of your heart in the heavenly Zion in Jesus Christ? Because this psalmist, writing somewhere around, you know, 1900 BC, says that a coming kingdom of God is going to produce that in people from all over the world who were once dirtball sinners, but now Zion is their ultimate joy. All my springs of joy are in you. All of them. So as we go through the scripture, in 49 specific places, one of them being our passage, Isaiah 52, Jerusalem and Zion blend together and become interchangeable as the ultimate symbols and representation of God's love and purpose and redeeming power. So Isaiah, he's writing to Jerusalem, he's writing to Zion, but not just any old time in their history, he's saying, O captive Jerusalem, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, again, the Babylonians didn't come and, and capture houses and cities and, or city parts and ramparts and, and temple stones and bring them back. Now, they brought back some of the loot, but they didn't bring back buildings. They just tore them down and shattered them. But they did bring back a lot of captives. And again, Jerusalem is about people. Zion is about people. Zion is representative, even in the Old Testament. Now you can read several places in Isaiah. And remember, Isaiah is being written before the captivity occurs. So you can go to Jeremiah when the captivity is occurring, or Ezekiel, and you're going to hear all about captivity, or Daniel, you're going to hear all about captivity. But this is 125 years before it occurs. And one of the passages in Isaiah says, go forth from Babylon. Wait a minute, we're not there. Well, you're going to be one day. You're going to be one day because you failed to obey what I told you from the beginning. Just listen to my word and live by it. And it's not a lot. It's not hard. You're not supposed to lie. You're not supposed to steal. You're not supposed to commit adultery. The world thinks that, you know, Christianity is going to tell you that you can't have fun at all. That's absurd. What it says is you can't have your worldly definition of fun, that's for sure. At least not with having a good outcome in eternity. But it doesn't say you can't have fun. (laughs) We've read all over the place so far, what? Joy, gladness, singing. That's kind of like fun, you know. Now, I don't consider dancing fun, but I know a whole bunch of you do. And I'm glad to watch it. And I'll secretly confess I want to be a salsa dancer without all the worldliness about it. I watch it and I go, gosh, I wish I could do that, you know. Oh, well. I used to watch the dance, the dance movies that would come out. Gwen was like in shock. Is this you? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's not me because I can't do it, but I really wish I could. Dancing for joy in the Lord. That is the picture. Not not having fun. Not the world saying, oh, you've got to live life to the full. I'm like, no, you live your life unto God and you'll have it forever. 
They're full as what? 50, 60, 70 years? That's what they call full. Do you call that full? I call eternity full. 60, 70 years, that's the first drop. Go forth from Babylon. Flee from the Chaldeans. This is a prophecy of the future. Declare the sound of joyful shouting. Proclaim this. Send it out to the end of the earth. The end of the earth. And say that the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And so you start to see in Isaiah... The prophecy in Isaiah will address Jerusalem and Zion. And the first things you read about is, well, Jerusalem and Zion are destroyed and therefore will be restored. And Isaiah talks a lot about Jerusalem being restored. And that was fulfilled. You see, a lot of sensational prophecy folks want to say, oh no, there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, yet to come away, no, 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 uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. It was already done. Sorry, guys. The prophecies of Isaiah are already fulfilled. Well, there's double, no, there's not double fulfillment. Again, that's just scholarly tricks to make those of us who aren't keeping up with them or can't keep up with them because they're out there just trying to prove a failed theology. Jerusalem was destroyed and Jerusalem was restored and Isaiah talks about this. But there's also a Jerusalem of a new covenant. We read in Galatians chapter 4, the Jerusalem that now is, there and now is, earth, there is and now is, earthly Jerusalem at the time of Galatians. The Galatians contrast that with a Jerusalem that is above and above Jerusalem, or as we read in Hebrews 12, a heavenly Jerusalem, or as we see throughout the book of Revelation and ultimately in chapter 21-22, a new Jerusalem. That earthly Jerusalem was destroyed to the ground in 70 AD. It's over. The old covenant that it was attached to was done away in Jesus Christ. There is no old covenant. There is no national Israel constituted by an old covenant. The old covenant is gone. And the earthly Jerusalem and the earthly temple and all of the other earthly accoutrements of that temple have all been destroyed and swept away because they represented an old covenant that is no longer in force. And there is a new Jerusalem, an above Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem that is our mother, according to Galatians. And Isaiah 54, by the way. We're going to see more of this. This is not esoteric theology I'm presenting here. This is core Christian doctrine, by the way. The debates over dispensationalism and covenant theology and new covenant theology are not peripheral issues. They are core and foundational to Christianity. 
There's more material about the issue of the history of redemption than there is about justification by faith in the New Testament. These are vital to truth and to reality and to proclamation. Earthly Jerusalem is over. The heavenly Jerusalem is now in force. Are you a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion? That's the only question you need to answer in your life up front. If you're a citizen of heavenly Zion, well, God has some incredible things to say to you. The first thing he says is awake, awake. We encounter this awake, awake in Isaiah 51, verse 9 and verse 17. God, in the first eight verses of chapter 51, announced amazing promises. He talked about Abraham and Sarah, and God is now going to bring those purposes to pass and fulfillment. He talks about Edom and and, and representing a new creation that he's going to bring to pass. The salvation that he brings is going to be like Eden. A new creation, a new Eden. God is going to bring into human history through his arm of the Lord, through his servant, a righteousness that will be forever, that will endure, that will never fade away. God says to all those hearing those promises, whether in 700 B.C. or in 2022 A.D., wake up. Get out of your stupor. Get the fog out of your brain. Get the fog out of your soul. Get your priorities straightened out. Wake up. In Isaiah 52, 1 and 2, he's speaking to a generation that will be delivered from Babylon. But beyond that, as we shall see clearly, beyond that, he's speaking to the whole earth. Wake up. Isaiah 55, wake up. And you've got to do something. As Christians, we think we can be passive and things are just going to happen to us. Well, you know, God made the universe. He can just kind of push my life along. No, God says, wake up and clothe yourself. Clothe yourself. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up. Loose yourself. Now remember, God is saying, you can do these things because I'm going to bring the Persians in and I'm going to whack the Babylonians and the Persian king is going to tell you to go back home. But you still got to cross that desert. You got to go there. And you got to, you got to start building. And you got to fight some enemies. And so you got a trowel in one hand to build with and a sword in the other to deal with the enemies. But here, in some very poetic language, he's saying, clothe yourself. It's something you've got to do. An urgent call to respond in faith and action to the promises and purposes of God. That are sure and certain. That are 100, 150 years down the road going to come to pass. He's talking to a generation that doesn't even exist. 
This is what you have to do. When God speaks and says, I will, we are responsible for decisive action and determination in response to it. God redeems. We must act in decisive faith. Are you doing that? Or are you letting your life just kind of roll along? I mean, water takes the least path of resistance. Is that your version of Christianity? Least path of resistance. God sets them free. They just take the chains off their neck. Hey, I've already clipped the chain. No one's holding it anymore, but get it off your neck. You've been wallowing in the dust. Rise up. And God says, wake out of that groggy stupor, take hold of faith, and be strong. Clothe yourself with what? Strength. Regain focus. Regain your personal and collective identity. Regain your privilege and purpose, O Israelites, that have been in bondage and now are set free. This isn't a time to sit around and sip mint juleps at the first oasis you come to. What about us? Jesus Christ has come and has set us free from sin and death. We have the authority to be the children of God. We can stand against principalities and powers. We can pray. We can proclaim at whatever level of opportunity we are given. We have privilege. We have purpose. We are participating in the realities of a future salvation that Isaiah 51 and 55 point to. Here's Isaiah. He's an example. He's talking about a future that he will not be a part of in his lifetime. That's why Peter said they knew that they were not preaching to themselves or their generation, but to a future generation to come. They knew that. We see it right here. It's right in front of our face. Isaiah 700 B.C., talking to people who in 535 B.C. will return. He wasn't preaching to himself. Clothe yourselves in strength. Clothe yourselves in beautiful garments. On this matter of strength, it's an important thing because you know how Satan's going to tear this church apart if he is? He's going to do it by just sitting down, people sitting down in passive victimhood. That's how he's going to do it. He's not likely to bring in some crazy theology. We're not likely to become sensationalists next, next year or deny the atonement, as some say we will because we're New Covenant theologians. I haven't heard anybody deny the atonement yet. Don't think that's going to happen. But I have seen people start their pity parties. I have seen people start their criticism journeys and threads. I have seen people who 
just say that walking in faith is just too hard. Every one of us has that temptation. Don't think that you're unique or alone. Every one of us is tempted to just sit down and go into cruise control because that's real easy. Ah, someone else will pray for that. Every one of us can sit down and say, well, here's my opinion, and I don't like that other one. If you think you don't like my opinions, you should have my my view of you. (laughs) I don't like a lot of opinions that float around. And so I have the choice. Do I pick up my opinion and make it to be a normalized biblical opinion, or do I go, well, that's my opinion versus their opinion? Who cares? I can get in a pity party. Lord knows how many of them I've tried to start and sent out invitations. Gwen knows. Brethren, we have to be strong in the Lord. There's no other option. It's not optional to not be strong in the Lord. Everybody thinks it's an option. Well, I can be a Christian, but then I can go into discipleship. See, there's always this second-tier Christianity that makes you jet-propelled. Normal Christianity can't really get you there. You need to strap on an extra rocket booster of, well, you know, you're the carnal Christian, but you've got to be a committed Christian. You've got to let Jesus be on the throne. I mean, there's all these heretical, and I call them heretical, views of sanctification. They're all, every last one of them, heretical. There's only one definition of personal holiness, and either you're living it or you're not. And that's just the way it is. And it's not about an emotional experience of God. I love when the Lord takes me up on mountaintops. Anybody here not like to be on a mountaintop with God? Anybody here not want to be up on that mountain, Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured? Any of you here who doesn't want to have been there? Everybody wants to be there. But that's reserved for a new heavens and a new earth, guys. God gives us a little taste every now and then. The pursuit of holiness is not the pursuit of being on a mountaintop with God. That's the fallacy and the foolishness of monasteries. I'm going to go into this contemplative life. Baloney, does this sound like a contemplative life to you? Romans 16, read it. How many times does it say, give my greetings to so-and-so who labor in the Lord? Those are the only people that get greetings in Romans 16 that I know of. You say, how can I labor? I'm not a preacher. You can do more and do better things than a preacher can. You can pray for that preacher because it's your prayers that will energize it, not the preacher's significance. Intellect is not the power of the gospel. Wonderful personalities, appealing personalities, and hair combed the right way, and clothes worn the right way. That's not the power of the gospel. That's the power of worldly stuff. Prayer and the Holy Spirit, that's the power of the gospel. And every one of us here can engage in it. Christianity requires decisive action and determination. And these urgent calls are right here in Isaiah. God redeems and we must act. We're to put on strength. We're to put on beautiful garments. Now, after all the stuff that's been talked about over the last months, out of Exodus 19, 
What do these beautiful garments point to? Anybody? Kingdom of priests. Beautiful garments. Put on your strength, put on your beautiful garments. These are things that are yours in Christ Jesus. Exodus 28, 2 and 40. What were the garments for? Anybody remember? Besides the guy who preached it? For glory and for beauty. You see, the world looked on those priestly garments, they might say, oh, cool, this and that. But they didn't see what God wanted those garments to represent because they were worldly. A whole lot of people saw Jesus Christ even work miracles, but they never saw the Son of God in him. And a lot of people, God's saying, look, these garments mean something. And you need to look beyond the outward garments that get kind of dirty and got to get washed and all those things. And you got to see what I gave them to Aaron and his sons for, for glory and for beauty. And now he gives them to all his saints. We are all a kingdom of priests. And God says, put on your beautiful garments. Are you doing that? Or are you leaving them in the closet and having pity parties? Beautiful garments. And to add to it, this term, rise up, is an interesting term. I'd like to go into Zechariah 3, 1 through 5, and you get a picture there of what? Joshua, where they take his dirty garments off and put his beautiful garments on, don't they? Read that. That's what Jesus Christ has done for you. Every last one of you. I don't care if you're four years old, five years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, or we won't go any further. Doesn't matter. You all have beautiful garments, and they fit, and they will always fit. They won't ever need to be taken in. They won't ever need to be hemmed up. They are the beautiful garments that Jesus Christ has given to every one of his saints, every last one, from the small to the great, from the rich to the poor. From the Gentile to the Jew, we all have the same beautiful garments with our own individual monograms. We could see in Isaiah 61, turn there quickly, if you will. And it's, it's important to understand this. Isaiah 61.1, the spirit of the Lord Jehovah is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. That is talking first to the captives of Babylon. But who ultimately fulfills that verse from Isaiah? Isn't that what Jesus, Luke chapter 4, went into a synagogue, went to the scroll, went to the place in the Isaiah scroll and read it, and he said, today is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. That's why I can say dispensationalism is wacko. Jesus Christ fulfills this. This isn't one verse you lift out and throw into your prophecy parade. This is a verse you read in the context of the whole of what is being said. 
in chapters 40 through 66. And Jesus is the one fulfilling this. He's proclaiming liberty to more than just Babylonian captives. And he says, three, to appoint unto all them that mourn in Zion, to give them a garland for ashes, an oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Put on your beautiful garments. They're yours. Treasure them. And he goes on and he says, rise up. And that word rise up is a, an important word. It's not a word that just means get up. It's a word that means get up and stand in your rightful place. Don't just put on the beautiful garments of your royal priesthood. Rise up and take your royal place. Satan throwing wet blankets on you. Pray and tell him that if he doesn't leave you alone, you're going to read Revelation 20 to him. And then go do it. And read it out loud. And see if he wants to hang around and hear of his destruction. I do that, by the way. Gwen can tell you. There's wacky dispensations and there's wacky Steve. Sometimes that's what you have to do. You have to sit there with your voice because you're supposed to pray with your voice. If you go through the, the Psalms especially, I lift up my voice. With my lips I will praise you. I mean, we're supposed to use our voice box to praise the Lord and to pray. And if need be, Start declaring to the enemies of God, the principalities and powers of darkness, that you stand for Jesus Christ and he should take a hike, that you have the authority to be a child of God. What does he think he's doing? God is true. You're a liar. Oppose him. That may sound a little Pentecostal, but maybe they have an angle on something. Now, not much of one. Don't take it too far. I could tell you some really funny stories about taking it too far. Man, you got to stand. you got to rise up. you got to take your place, your authority as a child of God. You've got to loose yourself from the chains around your neck. Some people wallow in ongoing sin and struggle because they just won't take their chains off their neck. You're looking at things you're not supposed to? Well, then stop. I mean, what else is there to say? Sure, we can go into the psychology of it and this and that, but what does God say? Just take the chain from off your neck. You keep letting your tongue wag more than you should at your husband or wife? Well, then start biting it. Take the chain from off your neck. This is not intellectually difficult. It might be difficult when you've got to bite your tongue clean off, but start doing it. It gets easier. Loose yourself. In the New Testament, quickly, well, Deuteronomy, you shall keep every commandment which I command you this day so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land. We've many of us heard these passages before. But they start all the way back in Deuteronomy. You're going to go in and possess the land where there's enemies, where there's challenges, where you've got to work, you've got to labor, you've got to build stuff. God's given it to you, but you have to improve it. And you've got to take it. 
Deuteronomy 31, be strong, courageous, do not be afraid. The Lord your God goes with you. He's not going to fail you or forsake you, but he's going to let you labor because that's what you're supposed to do. Joshua, we all know it. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and very courageous. But be careful to do everything that is written in the Word of God. When you read something in the Word of God and it's contrary to your opinion, what are you going to change, the Bible or your opinion? And how soon are you going to do it? The 20th time you read it? The 50th time you read it? Or the first time you read it? Because it's not going to change. We have things that we do in this body and we determine in this body because we've read the whole counsel of God and we've determined to live by it and do it here. Other people say, oh, you're not right, oh, this, that, it's, the passage is foggy. And we go, no, it's not foggy. It's only foggy to you because you don't want to do it. Get clear, get honest, get real, take your stand and follow God. Be careful to do according to all that is written. Careful. Not sloppy, not fuzzy. Careful. Be strong and courageous. Don't tremble. Don't be dismayed. God is with you wherever you go. Psalm 24, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Well, you don't understand. I mean, I got to wait? Yeah. That's what the psalmist says. Yeah, wait. And waiting is not so much a matter of time, a matter of duration. It's a matter of trust. Trust God. He may remedy your situation in an hour, a day, a week, a month, a year, maybe never. Maybe you got to be like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Do you really believe this God has your best interest in heart? Psalm 31, set one. Read it, it's really cool. Be strong and let your heart take courage. 1 Corinthians, stand firm in faith, act like men, be strong. Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. My brothers and sisters, this is what we see in Isaiah. Put on the beautiful garments God has given you and be strong in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, where you tell us no matter where we are, if we are trusting in you, you are with us, you are behind us, you are rearward, you are, you're in front of us. Lord, all we have to do is be careful to follow everything according to your word, and we will prosper. Lord, it's all summed up in Psalm 1, that if we meditate on your word day and night, we're going to be like trees planted by rivers of water who brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and everything we do will prosper. So Lord, just pray that you would give us all this sense that we can't throw pity parties, we can't be passive, we can't sit around and take the easy roots of criticism. Um, Lord, we have to be active in serving you, following you, developing friendships, uh, presenting your kingdom at every level that we possibly can and glorying in you, our living God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's his name we pray. Amen.